0: And welcome to the Digiday podcast, Lara O'Reilly here, your new regular host and also Digiday's senior correspondent. This week, I'm excited to welcome Bob Cohn to the show. Bob is the fairly recently appointed President and Managing Director at The Economist. So, Bob, hello. Hi, Lara.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Um, so, as I say, you only joined The Economist, I think, in, in January. Is that right?
1: Uh, exactly. February 1st, actually. Yes.
0: Ah, okay. Um, So... That was after a good 10-year stint at The Atlantic, where you were on the, the other side of the fence, if you like. You were the digital editor and then later became the president there. Um, you, you already said that you you were going to step down from The Atlantic the, the previous year anyway, but what exactly kind of inspired the move to The Economist?
1: Uh, yeah, I had a great 10-plus um, uh, years uh, at The Atlantic, and you're right. It was split between uh, about half my time uh, as a journalist, which had been all of my experience prior to coming to The Atlantic was as a journalist, and I came there to be the digital editor and to oversee theatlantic.com and a few other digital properties and to help grow the digital footprint at The Atlantic. And then I became president uh, uh, about halfway through my, my, my tenure there. Uh, and so when I left there just about a year ago to take a little time off uh, between things, I, I knew that I was... Um, I knew generally what I was looking for, but not specifically. What I wanted was for The Next Thing to be clearly a a place that was known for uh, the quality of its journalism and the power of its brand. Those were two things that mattered to me uh, at The Atlantic, at previous places in my career, and that was very important. But I was also looking for some new things, especially a chance to have a a global business experience and to to work on a title and a a publishing operation with a global perspective. Uh, In my earlier jobs at uh, the Washington Post Company, when I worked for for Newsweek uh, uh, out of college for 10 years or at Conde Nast or at the Atlantic, um, my focus was pretty much domestic and the focus of those titles uh, was, was North America and U.S. So the chance to um, have kind of a global perspective uh, through the journalism and through the business, I thought was a great growth opportunity and going to be really interesting. And then I think there was this moment in time, it, you know, uh, midway uh, through this presidential administration where uh, our, our worlds became so polarized and there's so much distrust of each other and of the media and the, and of the search uh the search for truth that that one of the things i was looking for was a a place that had the 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 right kind of editorial values that could kind of cut through this noise and i thought that the economist fit that bill really really nicely in terms of being uh trustworthy and 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 um rigorous and fact checked and fair minded uh and then i would say really almost mostly the driver was all those things plus the kind of lean forward sense that the new leadership had. Uh, uh, Laura Borough had been named CEO a couple months before I came on. And with a new CEO and a new board chair and, and a lot of um uh eagerness and appetite and hunger for change and growth and innovation, um, that was a major uh driver for me um, to go somewhere where where uh as good as the operation already was and the brand already was there was this kind of uh, yearning for improvement as well.
0: This is where I got January from because you announced, you, your appointment was announced in January. Um, and at the time, um, The Economist said one of your key roles, as you kind of mentioned earlier, was to expand the international readership uh, of The Economist, particularly in North America, um, which is where you're, you're still based. You're not over in HQ in London. Um, but then a global pandemic hit. Has that kind of changed your job description at all?
1: Well, not so much my job description. I would say the way we've executed uh, has changed because of COVID. You know, I really did uh, come in to oversee the core uh, economist business, uh, uh, especially the B2C side with with, with, uh, growing uh, circulation, um, focusing on product innovation uh, and, and new markets uh, uh, both uh, in Europe and overseas in the, in the U.S., which, of course, is our biggest market, but also in Asia and, and Latin America, and improving uh, and focusing with my colleagues on, on the customer experience and, and new digital offerings. All that um, uh, absolutely uh, core to the job and, 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 the, and the main description. We thought we'd be executing that kind of through the prism of this uh, 2020 election in the U.S., that that would be kind of um, the way we would go about um, trying to fulfill some of those goals. And then, of course, I was here about six weeks when, when COVID struck and uh, in many ways subverted uh, all of our job descriptions. Uh, we've still focused mm-hmm. very much on the U.S., and I can talk about that, but of course, um, uh, including uh, COVID, the impact of COVID, including me not traveling to London every month as I thought I would be, and me um, uh, ha- has been just uh, a monkey wrench that that all of us have dealt with
0: let's pick apart um the the different strands to the economist business then and just get a sense of how you've been kind of steering those through this period so um clearly subscriptions are super important to the economist and make up you know subscriptions plus circulation is kind of more than half half of your revenue um so how did your subscription business fare during the pandemic as it wore on i think you know if you look at other Great, well-known subscription businesses, New York Times and and so on. They seem to have been fairly resilient. Were you seeing the same?
1: Yeah, I would say even better than resilient. On on the circulation side, uh, with the exception of Newsstand, which we can talk about, um, it was Mm -hmm. a really strong uh, period for circulation. You know, our journalism has never been more essential than it has been during the COVID uh, crisis. And and I think we're uh, uh, kind of uniquely suited uh, to provide uh coverage and 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 analysis because the story has so much breadth it 's a public health story it 's a finance story it 's a business story it's a politics story uh, uh, it 's a culture story and and we're among the relatively few brands out there that have that kind of horizontal breadth so uh, people um, we were situated to uh, cover this in a uh, smart and comprehensive way. And so, uh, and and our our readers and and new readers responded. So the first observation about the impact of COVID is that we had kind of a surge in uh, subscribers back in March and April. Um, And it's a surge that has um, dissipated, but not gone away completely, uh, really until the end of summer. And, And so we did see for a few months back in the spring, Um, subscribers, new subscribers coming out at about twice the rate that we had expected. Um, So from the perspective of circulation, which is the biggest driver of our revenue, as you pointed out, um, uh, it's uh, the economist has fared well during this very difficult time.
0: So I imagine when you get a big unexpected surge of subscribers, you change your marketing approach, I guess, and focus more on Retention rather than acquisition. Um, my understanding is you were you were kind of doing that anyway pre COVID, but I, I imagine you kind of ramped up efforts as the months wore on. Can you talk to me a little bit about the things you've been doing there?
1: Yeah, Larry, you're exactly right that we were focused on retention even prior to my arrival as a, an area where uh, institutionally we had um, not focused as much as we should. We were an acquisition machine and uh, we were not uh, focused as diligently as we could on retention. So we came into this year uh, with a with, with, uh, determination to be better at that and to, and to embrace best practice and, and to go beyond best practice. And then when COVID comes along and we have a surge in acquisitions, that creates a kind of urgency to make sure that we, we keep those new newly acquired subs, some of them come on just for an introductory offer, which lasts only 12 weeks. So by summer, you're seeing the first round of those introductory subscribers potentially churning if you haven't gotten your retention apparatus in order. So uh, you're right, we, we have been focusing, um, uh, and there are a couple of, of, of levers we've been we've been trying to pull. The first is digital engagement. Uh, there the, you know there's a there's a uh, tried and true correlation between uh, readers who are engaged digitally who come back to the site um, uh, uh, frequently who use the apps who, who read your newsletters who listen to podcasts um, there's a, a, a connection between that and retention so we've been mm. focusing hard on engagement we have in, improved over the last year there's been a 21 percent increase in the percentage of subscribers who are in the highly engaged category for us. Um, And we've really focused on on engagement through uh, improving the user experience, um, uh, finding ways to surface uh, content to people already experiencing uh, our content already on the site or in the app um, uh, in a newsletter. And and so a big, big kind of product focus and marketing focus on that. Um, But other things as well in retention, we've added some subscriber-only benefits uh, to our portfolio. So most of our newsletters are free. Uh, They're Mm -hmm. available to anybody who's interested. They're kind of top of funnel. Uh, We have uh, huge uh, subscriber bases, 2.9 million uh, uh, subscribers to our our biggest newsletter, 2.4 million to our second. But we've introduced um, uh, subscriber-only newsletters in one that's called Cover Story that came out earlier this year that really is kind of the behind-the-scenes account of how we created that particular cover. And it's often kind of uh, humorous in, where, in which the editorial team gives the designer a really difficult task, sometimes an abstract <laughs> task, and, the, uh, and we show the sketches along the way. And it's kind of a byplay play between uh, the editor and the cover designer as they... As they work their way toward a solution which (laughs) and as you know uh economist covers are kind of iconic so it's fun Mm. to watch that behind the scenes that's subscriber only and and we have some events now that are subscriber only thanks to uh the uh the the kind of comfort factor that so many of us have now with with digital events and and zoom events uh and so we are doing uh twice monthly uh starting back in the summer and going right through the end of the year Twice monthly events for subscribers only. Uh, typically, they trade off between one of our journalists interviewing uh, a newsmaker. We had Zanny Minton bettos our editor, uh, interview Bill Gates. Uh, uh, maybe two months ago, we had forty-four thousand subscribers. Um, RCP, yes, to that, um, and and more than twenty-seven thousand actually came. Uh, a little bit of attrition, but twenty-seven thousand people. You're talking about filling Madison Square Garden one and a half times for for that Zoom conversation. So uh, we're doing newsmaker conversations as well as um, conversations among our our own journalists that kind of give a peek under the hood at how we create the journalism. And those are also only for subscribers. And then just some basic um, retention uh, uh, hygiene, I would call it, Uh, better onboarding marketing, better in-life communications, uh, better customer service, for sure. A big focus uh, as we are looking at, at how we treat our customers uh, across the board uh, and giving kind of white-glove customer service uh, whenever we can, and w- which ought to be all the time. So uh, retention has uh, been a big focus, as you point out, and um, is very important to us.
0: You kind of came in... Um... I guess just after or maybe just as The Economist was writing down um, a big investment, a big £12 million investment in the kind of core subscription management customer service platform um, that just didn't kind of match with the the technology from what I can tell didn't really match with future needs and particularly if if you're revolving lots of your product around um, digital now. So what what new what, what kind of do you have in place technology wise that's kind of more fit for purpose when we're looking at kind of 2020 and and beyond and are you also seeing i mean what is a good no churn is good churn but what what is a kind of good churn number for for uh, for the economist
1: well on the on the first point uh the kind of technology platform uh you're right uh we are in the middle and and uh nearing a big date for us coming up uh, later this year, uh, to uh, uh, start uh, activating something we've been building uh, for the last year, which is this kind of customer experience platform that will help us across the board, not just by improving uh, the 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 uh, the user experience and and the ways in which uh, marketers on our team can get into the back end and and create journeys for customers to improve acquisition, to improve retention. We expect this to be a great opportunity um, to uh, collect uh, information about what our users want and, and to be better at product innovation uh, as a result of that. So this is, a, a, as you note, a fairly ambitious uh, new platform, and we will start seeing the fruits of it uh, as early as the end of this year and all through FY21 when it comes online. And it's been a big kind of behind-the-scenes focus uh, of what we've been doing. Uh, and reducing churn is um, definitely one of its goals, uh, and, and we were uh, on that already. And, uh, and, of course, there is no easy answer to what's a good churn rate because uh, we break it down into the introductory offers, uh, the one-year churn, uh, the three-year churn, the lifetime churn, uh, etc. So um, all of those are going in the right direction for us right now. Uh, and we have some mm-hmm. ambitious goals and, uh, I think that retention has been one of our, one of our best stories of the year.
0: I'm also interested, interested that like you said the kind of one year churn as well. Um, the FT has spoken before about kind of, they focus on the very early stages of retention, um, more than anything else, you know, it's like kind of starting a, a gym membership. It's about getting your readers into a regular routine in the first month. Otherwise they'll just, they'll just give up, um, is that where you kind of tend to focus more of your efforts on that first thirty days and then kind of the rest follows?
1: Yeah, I would see yes, in the early time, not necessarily just the first thirty days, but the first ninety days are really important. In getting people through um, uh, our our introductory offer, which is a twelve week offer. So getting them to come on to uh, a full to- a full rate after the introductory offer. One of the things we 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 went from the outside in to improve churn, is uh, we changed the introductory offer back in May uh, for years, your your listeners may, may recall, because it was kind of so ubiquitous in the marketplace. We had a 12 for 12 offer, 12 issues, 12 mm-hmm. pounds, $12, 12 for 12, really easy to say. Um, uh, the day I arrived, everybody was using it. And what we decided, the churn was pretty high at the conclusion of those 12 weeks, in part because uh, there was a fairly steep uh, increase in, in price because, we're, we, you know, we're not the cheapest product out there, given the quality of our journalism. And so there was this um, uh, supposition that we were potentially bringing in readers who are interested just in value and then couldn't um, or, or were disinclined um, to jump to full price. So we changed the introductory offer from from 12 issues, 12 pounds, 12 dollars to 50 percent off the full rate for your first 12 weeks. And uh, the effect of that was to raise the introductory offer. And we were prepared, the, the supposition was well, we're going to attract many fewer readers uh, to subscribe, but they're going to retain better because they're going to be, mm. uh, the, the, the increase will be less steep. Um, to our great surprise and, and satisfaction, we saw only a slight decline in subscriber starts and new subscribers coming out into the introductory offer. And yes, we are seeing because we've had this found place for 5 months we've had a few months of watching the retention rates on that end of 12 week cycle we are exceeding the retention rate that we expected but we are um, but the dampening effect on acquisition is not as great as we expected if you, if, if that makes sense and so Yeah yeah uh,
0: cuz the revenue per user is up I suppose.
1: Absolutely. So that was a another way of focusing on retention by focusing on the offer. It was a different way of coming at the same problem.
0: I want to move on to advertising now. Um, It's kind of no secret that, you know, there weren't many media businesses that didn't feel a hit in the early throes of the pandemic as lots of advertisers just kind of paused what they were doing while they tried to assess what was going on. Um, And it's obviously just been a little bit bumpy since. But are you seeing now any particular bright spots um, with all the caveats that, Who knows what's going to be around the corner tomorrow, next week, next month?
1: Yeah, I think both your points are right. Clearly, uh, it it was an uncertain time uh, back earlier this year and right through the summer uh, uh, for marketers uh, and uh, for the B2B side of our business, uh, for advertising and events um, that uh, created some turbulence, uh, and we were hardly alone uh, in that. Uh, But it also coincides with a general transition of our advertising business away from traditional advertising, uh, simply pages in the magazine or uh, a standard display on the website, uh, and much more uh, toward research and content work on behalf of uh, our partners, on behalf of clients. And uh, we are finding that that part Um, which we were already embracing and are doing so with kind of more gusto now, is growing year over year, only slightly. But that is Mm -hmm. growing year over year uh, in an otherwise uh, down market. And and we're hardly the only ones experiencing that. Uh, And on the audio side, we're seeing uh, podcast revenue uh, about doubling um, year over year um, as we've added um, uh, another podcast, but also just grown our podcast listeners and as the industry matures um and i think we have a uh uh, our newsroom loves audio as a storytelling um platform uh on the business side we love it as a growth opportunity um and and so i think there's a good story uh on that as well
0: time now for a quick break is there anything particularly smart that you've done around podcasts to grow revenue there i mean clearly. you know downloads are up, your your monthly audience is up, therefore it would follow that um, your advertising revenue would increase in line. But are you doing anything kind of more bespoke or working with any different partners that's really helped that grow? I mean adding another podcast is that is that the checks and balance one? yes um, but that 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 helps too well
1: yeah and and that was the main thing we did because we added this checks and balance podcast back in, uh, I think, February or maybe in January of this year, which focused on uh, the U.S. election uh, and um, kind of politics and policy. It's been so successful. We're going to keep it going. Maybe we'll have to change the the tagline because it's about more than the election, but we're going to keep it going (laughs) beyond, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, the election uh, next month. And um, that's been a big driver um, of uh, interest, both among our our um, consumers among audio consumers of the economists, but in the newsroom it's it's acknowledged for its quality and like uh, a couple of our other podcasts like um, the intelligence, which is our daily show um, and it features our own journalists uh, in conversation with our host um, th- it is driving enthusiasm within the newsroom itself. Uh, we do a little bit of um, work uh, we don't do any brand we don't do any branded podcasts per se. Uh, But we are working um, our World In, uh, which is our annual um, kind of compendium of what to watch the world in 2021. It'll be out uh, in November and it's uh, a uh, really high quality um, magazine that is kind of a keeper uh, Mm. um, uh, to look at what's coming up um, through the prism of economist journalists. Uh, There will be some um, audio, there's some podcasts against that that are um, sponsored but are not brand partner; they're just sponsored by by uh, um, by some of our uh, some of our business partners.
0: Clearly, it's been a kind of difficult few months, and you've had to make some tough decisions. Um, well, well, the companies had to make some tough decisions. The, the the agency business was closed, and there were um, sadly some layoffs as well. And I I guess even before that, there had been. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of change in your top ranks. Um obviously you joined, a new CEO, um, there's a new chief product officer, new chief marketing officer, <laughs> um and, and chief uh, information officer, chief talent officer, and so on. Um is the ship kind of studied now? Are you still looking at any other big kind of structural changes or are you kind of set for the year or so? Yeah, well, I'll
1: have to add to that long list that you rightly uh, pointed out of, of new leadership, also new Chief data Officer and uh, uh, under uh, a new head of client solutions, which is a, uh, a managing director role, which is uh, kind of our version of a, of Chief Revenue Officer. So um, a, the, the, the leadership suite has been really filled out uh, under Lara, the, the the CEO who's been here just now uh, 13 months. Uh, and a lot of um, C-suite folks have come in since I joined in, in the winter. Uh, and uh, yes, I think there might be—I would say there either are zero or one more role open. I can't quite remember uh, the cadence here, but um, our leadership team is 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 filled out now, um, and it's uh, it's really interesting to have so much new blood at a place that is 177 years old where heritage and tradition are supremely important. They're what inform the brand. and The editorial values inform all the brand values, uh, but uh, a lot of new um, enthusiasm and blood on, on the business side to, uh, to, to, to take the economists to the next level. And I think that's a good marriage. We're not going anywhere uh, in terms of, of creating distance against uh, the, 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 the brand values um that that our journalists have been uh building and animating uh for decades. Uh but we want to use those values um to grow the economist and I think we have a new leadership team that can do that.
0: So clearly next month um the US election, can you talk a little bit about how you're gearing up? Um, and particularly what I'm keen to get a sense of is as a as a reader and as an advertiser um why The Economist over, say, The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal or The Washington Post? What's going to kind of really differentiate your coverage but also things like your products and your your forecast models um, versus the competition?
1: I'm a uh, former political reporter and, uh, and native political junkie, so I can't believe we waited this long to get to the election. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I would say uh, in, in terms of for the reader um, – uh, we do offer a different proposition than other excellent publications out there, the New York Times or the Washington Post um, or, or Politico or places that are focused, um, you know, almost uh, in the case of, a, of like a Politico, exclusively on politics. Mm-hmm. We are going to give uh, our readers, U.S. readers and global readers, a unique perspective on the election because it's going to be a big picture. It's going to be global we're going to have kind of an arched eyebrow and and and, and a and, and, and a distance from it while at the same time our reporters are in the field on the ground at the rallies so we are we are in the moment but we maintain a perspective uh and when a big story happens when Amy Coney Barrett is nominated by the president to be uh a justice on the US Supreme Court uh and the and our peers will drop 13 stories in 24 hours <laughs> we'll drop one or two and our point is we're not going to deluge our readers um with every nuance of every story we're going to we're going to give you the one story you need to know to understand this development to put it in context um to uh to bring the rigor and the analysis you need um and it'll be memorable. Uh I, I had um a former colleague of mine uh after um the, the president went into the hospital um did his uh um, limousine tour of the Walter Reed grounds, and they got out of the hospital all in a in a 72-hour period, say they just came in and read the one piece that we had done on a Sunday, and that was all they needed to know. Um, and and there were, of <laughs> course, millions and millions of words spilled across the internet. Uh, so uh, those other uh, publications do excellent jobs, but, for a di- but per- potentially for a different audience or with a different purpose. So I think... Bringing our, our rigor and our analytical chops and, and, and our fair-mindedness and the fact that we're fact-checked uh, across the board and, and trustworthy, um, bringing that to the election and, and telling you in a more comprehensive, in a more definitive, not comprehensive, in a more definitive way what we are learning, what we are thinking about this topic. I think that's the value that we bring uh, to the reader. Uh, to our advertisers, um, we have put a lot of um, product muscle uh, into this election. Um, We created an election hub uh, on the site and in the app. We've launched both the Checks and Balance podcast and the Checks and Balance newsletter, um, two two new products for this year built around the elections. Uh, And as you point out, um, these forecast models, a, a presidential forecast model, earlier in the summer and then last month a uh, House and Senate uh, forecast model in which we are uh, have kind of a, an algorithm and a secret sauce that brings together uh, the polling that's out there combined with uh, a lot of other important historical data, economic data, um, uh, information about each district when it comes to, uh, to House races in particular. And try to give you a forecast and not just a finger to the wind poll. Uh, as of this morning, the forecast said that that uh Vice President Biden had a ninety-one percent chance of winning the White House and the the Democrats had a seventy-two percent chance of taking back the Senate. The House maintains a ninety-nine percent chance of staying Democrat. So um, you know, we all saw what happened in uh twenty sixteen uh with with polling. This is Designed to be better than polling, it's not just polling. It's supposed to be uh, a kind of more rigorous mathematical forecast model. In any event, we put considerable muscle behind launching those. Um, and and if you're a if you're a business partner, I think we're what we're trying to show is the the uh, diligence of our uh, journalistic coverage combined with some product innovation uh, across the board. Uh, to, to make us a good destination for you, not to mention our audience, which, is, of course, really is the first the first thing that matters uh, to, to, to those partners.
0: I asked Jim van der Heer of Axios this question, so I wanted to put it to you too. Is is a Biden win or a Trump win better for The Economist?
1: Is it better for The Economist? Uh, yeah. I, I don't... Huh. I'm tempted to ask what Jim said, but I will uh, instead... <laughs> I just don't think of it that way. I mean, listen, um, uh, turbulence and... Chaos and confusion is good for journalism, right? Uh, I've been at the Atlantic. I've been at I've been at Conde Nast. I've been around. I'm a, you know, it is the uh, I mean I suppose that the Trump presidency um, has been you know good for journalism, uh, but it, it's been it's been chaos for the journalists to do it, just like it's been chaos for, for all uh, uh, citizens or, or, or most citizens. So, um, uh, listen, we, The Economist, unlike a lot of other brands, actually has some um, philosophical moorings that date back to the founding in, in, in 1843, um, in protest of the corn laws uh, in the UK. And we are still true to our heritage of... Kind of classic liberalism, open borders, uh, open markets, globalism, fiscal conservatism and social being more socially liberal. And if you look at those values that have been around for one hundred and seventy seven years, you'd have to say that the current White House does not really um, does not really animate those values. Right. Um, Open borders, open markets, globalism, fiscal conservatism. I don't think you would associate that with the the incumbent. So uh, I, I don't know. Uh, that's kind of the brand values of the institution. Um, uh, but we write about the world, whether or not the, the the current leadership of the world is living up to those values or not living up to those values.
0: I mean, for the record, Jim's answer was very similar, um, but mostly just that the the kind of fire hose of news is a distraction from, you know, the major stories of the 21st century like climate change and um, artificial intelligence, China, so on. So, sure. um, yeah, it sounds like you share the same view. Um, we haven't got a lot of time yet left, but I did want to get a sense of um, your view of the the wider media market and how things are going to play out. I mean, clearly, as we said, 2020 has been bumpy, but it's exacerbated a lot of trends that were already there and also exposed some some weaknesses. And then perhaps we're seeing kind of new trends emerge like, um you yeah, know the rise of these single creators going off on their own and becoming their own brands and and going off to substack and so on um as you said subscriptions have been kind of somewhat um shielded from the biggest pandemic hits um so how do you kind of see media shaking out as we go into 2021 what what kind of models are going to win and emerge and what ones might go away
1: yeah i think you touched on an on, on an important one or at least an interesting one with with uh, kind of the um, uh, re-emergence of uh, a 20-year-old um, uh, platform, which is newsletters, uh, with the uh, success of Substack, uh, with uh, people like Andrew Sullivan or Casey Newton going over and starting their own uh, businesses off of um, those kinds of platforms. Uh, uh, I think I read last night that uh, uh, um, that uh Morning Brew is in conversation with Business Insider about an acquisition at, at, a, at a relatively high number. We'll see what happens. So there's this kind of moment that the newsletters are having. Um it, it reminds me uh of a cover we did at Wired in the 1990s, which was called Um <laughs> it, it was this big hand coming right at you in psychedelic colors because that was the that was the um oeuvre of of Wired in the day. And it said, push. And the idea was that, um, uh, you know, and this was really in the early years of the web and really no apps yet. Um, and the concept was that, that it was all going to be pushed to you. And that cover was widely ridiculed um, as just being <laughs> hopelessly off. And, of course, push has come and gone, but we're kind of back in a push moment now. Um, <laughs> I hope and, you
0: saved it for posterity, that cover.
1: Uh, absolutely. To show all um, the haters. But I think there's some other things going on too. I, I uh, you know, I think those businesses that built consumer um, uh, revenue pipelines um, early, before a kind of panic might have set in, are going to be better positioned, right? Um, yes. If you have uh, a, a robust subscription model, um, and not not only a subscription model, you still want advertising and 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 other B two B. Lines and you want to, you want resilience uh, in a portfolio that has multiple revenue streams, but in the absence of a robust consumer um, uh, revenue uh, uh, stream, I think it's really hard right now. What, what we've seen in the last year or two uh, is kind of what I would think was a desperate flight to to, to consumer revenue for those who are not in it uh, already, mm-hmm. um, and for those of us lucky enough to have built that business over the years. Uh, it is kind of a, um, you know, it's kind of a raft in a storm right now um, because of the turbulence on the B2B side. Um, and and I think we'll grow out of that. I think advertising um, will come back. Uh, but uh, for stability in a crisis, um, uh, B2C has been has been really important. Um, and um, and it's not easy to build, as a lot of people are are, are noting as they try to do it on the fly. Um, and in some ways, that points, I think, to a to a um, maybe a larger trend. It wasn't very long ago, uh, and and Digiday was was the place I would go to really help me think about this. That we all thought that the legacy media was dead, and the upstarts were going to rule the world. Um, and we all know, you know, some of them are still around, and some of them have gone away. Those upstarts, um, but the legacy media instead learned some of the tricks um, and got some of the nimbleness of the upstarts. Uh, and, uh, I think that's where, um, stability and, 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 mostly success is right now.
0: And so looking into 2021, um, Lara, your, your CEO, what's, what is she asking off you? What's going to be your, your key focus in, in growing The Economist next year? Is there one kind of specific target or goal or, or launch that you're going to be spending most of your time on?
1: Uh, I think the watchword is really sustainable growth. We really want to be a growth company, uh, not just in terms of financial performance, but in uh, being uh, having more subscribers and having a bigger footprint. So sustainable growth, and uh, that means not just pouring money into marketing and having to go out the retention uh, side, but 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 being deliberate uh, and 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 rigorous about it, and doing that through uh, product innovation. Um, and and pricing uh, variability uh, right now uh, the core economist products um, uh, digital or or uh, or bundle digital plus print uh, are very uh, close together in terms of price and 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 the journalism is is similar across uh, the two and I think we'll be focusing on more products at a wider uh, price range with different um, uh, propositions to to the reader and to the consumer. Uh, as a way of tapping into uh, markets that might be uh, at the higher end and at the lower end. And and mm-hmm. uh, I think we want to be aggressive about that. Well,
0: I'll let you get back to it, Bob. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This week's episode was produced by Ben Elman. As always, if you like this week's show, please let us know by rating and sharing it. We'll see you next week.